thank you for downloading the Kol Padash podcast. In this episode, Rabbi Shalom looks at Darwin's legacy and how the theory of evolution transformed our understanding of the world and our place in it. You may not know it, but there are Jewish creationists. And not just people who are of Jewish background and believe the world is only 6,000 years old. After all, if you went back 300 years, all Jews were Jewish creationists, but after all, the entire world was creationist. Nobody believed the world was more than 6,000 years old. But Jewish creationists come in a different flavor. They're people who believe that Judaism has always been the same in its core, in its essence. And you ask them, what's the core? And it's whatever they think is the core. Well, the core is the ethics, not the sacrifice. Well, why do you get to choose that and not the other? Is the core killing the Canaanites off? Is the core exclusion of women from the center of worship and practice? No, 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 that's not the core. Well, your standard seems a bit arbitrary to me. You see, their claim is, that Jewish life hasn't changed, it began a certain way, and it's carried on the same. When I was doing a summer program in Hebrew, the teacher wanted us to give a lecture as a way to practice our formal Hebrew research special terms and so on. I decided to do a talk on the Judaisms of the, what's called the Second Temple Period, the last few years before the year zero, last few centuries before the year zero. And so I wanted to use the word in my speech Judaisms, in Hebrew, Yahaduyot. The teacher said, there's no such word. I said, why not? It's a word, you can make it plural. Here's how you make it plural grammatically. So why can't I say Judaism? No, there's no such word. Because the concept was unacceptable, that there were Judaisms. But if you compare the animal sacrifice of the temple period to rabbinic Judaism, and you compare that to secular Zionism, or you compare that to Reform Judaism, or you, they're all very, very different. But the Jewish creationist would say they all have a core identity that's been the same. You try to point out to them, well, Bar Mitzvah shows up late. No, it's always been there. Mount Sinai, Moses got the commandments, it's always been the same. Fortunately for humanistic Judaism, today there are also Jewish evolutionists who believe that Jewish life evolved over time, that ceremonies may have been created one way and articulated differently. There weren't always ice sculptures when a child turned 13 years old. (laughs) Amazing. We look at the evidence. We see that the word bar in bar mitzvah is Aramaic, not Hebrew. It must have come from a time when Jews were speaking Aramaic, not the biblical period. We understand that it's a legal concept before it's a ceremony. That it wasn't a big deal in the Middle East and in other parts of the Jewish world until they took away the rights of a minor to do what a major, what a major, what a a, uh, mature person had to do. That is, until you were commanded to read from the Torah in certain communities, you were no longer allowed to, even to practice. So then the first time you could do it became a big event. That's when Bar Mitzvah became important. It wasn't important in most of the Jewish world for most of Jewish history. Jewish life evolved. It responded to the outside environment. It changed over time. One example 
that came just in Hanukkah. I've mentioned this before to those who have heard it. The dreidel itself, the four-sided top that you play with, those four letters did not stand for Neskadol Hayasham, a great miracle happened there. Originally, they were German. They stood for Nicht, nothing, Ganze, the whole thing, Halb, half, Stellein, put one in. Although in Nieder, sometimes you would say Schittein, which means throw one in, but you can't say that anymore, now that we're living in English. Well, what happened was, of course, you saw this top being played with N, G, H, and S on it in the Latin alphabet, and they adapted it to Hebrew use, to Jewish use. They were writing Yiddish, which meant German and Hebrew letters, so they wrote those in Hebrew letters, and later on, someone came up with a Hebrew phrase that would fit. It was evolution at its best, learning from the surrounding environment, making it your own, and creating something new. This is just one of the legacies of Charles Darwin's theory of evolution because it showed us not only how life came to be, but it showed us how things change, why new environments affect the core identity. An object, something living, grows and changes in response to its environment. Diversity is the key to life, and on and on. Now, some of you may have been tuned in this week to a debate that took place in Kentucky. It was held at a location called the Creation Museum, organized by a man named Ken Ham, and the Jewish antipathy to Ham has nothing to do with Mr. Ham. It was a debate between Ken Ham and Bill Nye, the science guy. They were trying to resolve the question of, did the world evolve or was it created? And was it created 6,000 years ago, basically the way it is today? You see, if you go to the Creation Museum, you'll see pictures, uh, or actually um, statues, of a triceratops with a saddle on it. Why? Because if the world was created 6,000 years ago, Adam and Eve and forward, then human beings coexisted with dinosaurs. So theoretically, they could have domesticated a triceratops, and just like the Flintstones, <laughs> they, they could have used animals for their, for their life. Okay. Now we laugh, but there are thousands of people in this country who take that very, very seriously because they believe that the core of their values, their ethics, their understanding of how the world works, the key to their eternal salvation is to believe that the world is 6,000 years old. Now when Ken Ham and Bill Nye went into this debate, evidently it came out relatively cordial, they behaved themselves one with the other. And Bill Nye generally is understood to have won. In fact, he did a survey in Christianity Today, and 90% said that Bill Nye, the science guy, won the debate in that publication. But 250 years ago, Bill Nye would have been the crazy one for claiming the world was more than 6,000 years old, or claiming that people have not always existed the way they do today. In the aftermath of this debate, of all people, Pat Robertson told Ken Ham to stifle it. Because he said, you're making us Christians look ridiculous. The world can't be 6,000 years old. There are dinosaur skeletons that are million. Pat Robertson is saying this on the 700 Club. Now, he believes in a God-guided evolution, that there was a spark, there was a design, there was a plan, there were miraculous interventions. All of those is part of Pat Robertson's perspective. But he's not willing to deny the facts of the dating and the ages of the earth. 
There's a difference between old earth creationists who accept the earth is old and young earth creationists who insist the world is 6,000. There are even flat earth creationists who still deny that the world is round. Now we have to understand the psychological tendency. We often imagine that life is as we've always known it to be. Talk to your children about what life was like before cell phones. Or you can ask them, do you know what a newspaper is? And they may not. Or the other example I heard recently was um, a woman was having trouble getting into her car because the key fob got messed up. And so her mother showed up and took the key and put it in the hole and turned it. And she said, you can do that? <laughs> because she had, <laughs> she had simply never done it. Now, we laugh at people who don't realize what we know from having grown up. But if you imagine life without a car, if you imagine life without the telephone, life without even the telegraph giving you news from all over the world the next day, it's a totally different world. We, we have trouble imagining what it could have been like. I mean, I find it hard enough to remember how you met someone at the airport before you had a cell phone. But it's been part of human life for centuries. If you look at medieval Passover Haggadot, where Jews would take the Passover story and decorate it with scenes from the narrative, they would always dress the people and build the buildings in the pictures just like what they were wearing, the buildings they were living in. So it looked like Moses was leaving 13th century Venice as he's in the exodus from Egypt. And Pharaoh is pursuing dressed up in crusader clothes. I mean, the irony is that people have always projected back what they know to be to be what the past must have been. The challenge of the story of evolution, or the story of the theory of evolution, is that it demonstrates that facts and reasoning can, not always, but can be stronger than psychology and tradition, even on Charles Darwin himself. Early in his life, he actually was considering going to work for the Church of England and not in the management department, to become a priest, or at least a deacon, and a religious official. He was a religious person growing up. And yet, this evidence, these details, the information he found changed his mind. It was a five-year voyage on the HMS Beagle that Charles Darwin took beginning in 1831. It was gone for five years. Again, imagining being on a boat and traveling for five years. He originally went to study geology. That was his primary area of study. He was looking to confirm something called uniformitarianism, which meant that natural laws and geology applied the same in past periods as in present periods. You see, one of the dilemmas for geologists in the 1830s was they were beginning to speculate that maybe the Earth was older than 6,000 years. It was radical when in the 1790s uh, one scholar published that maybe the earth was 75,000 years old. Because after all they wanted to explain why is it that when cliffs are worn away there's all these layers of sediment. And imagining how long it would take for the water to deposit and recede and to produce these things or to wear the holes that were worn in the cliffs, well maybe it took longer than 6,000 years given the rate of change we see now. Well, one of the religious responses was, well, it must have been a faster rate of change earlier. 
because they had a fixed boundary, 6,000 years, that's it. But if you believed, as Darwin did and was looking to prove on the Beagle, that the laws of nature were always the same going back in time, then that pushes back the boundary of that time period. But of course, he famously found his finches. He was observing not only the physical geology, but also the natural biology of these Galapagos Islands. And he found these birds that looked different and seemed to be wonderfully suited to the way they found their food and the way they lived and the way they hid and the way they survived. And they were different one from the other on the different islands. And when he came back and began to go through his specimens and to study what he had discovered and to talk to other botanists and, and uh, people who studied uh, the animals at the time, and they began to point out to him that these two species you thought were the same species are actually a different species. He began to wonder, well, why are they similar but different in different places? What is it about this space instead of that space that made the difference for them? How did they get here from the other place and why did that make them change and how did they change in the first place? Now by, 18, uh, by 1838, Darwin had a basic idea of the theory of evolution. In fact, one of the breakthroughs for him was reading of all people, uh, Charles Malthus, who had theories on population. Basically, he, ex he expected that human population would grow geometrically, but food production grows arithmetically uh, or directly. So inevitably, population outstrips food production, and there's a collapse of the population, and then it gets back into equilibrium. And Darwin realized that perhaps this could apply to the animal kingdom as well, not just to European monarchies. Perhaps if the animal population grew and there was always this fight for food, that those with an advantage might do better at getting food and thus living and thus breeding. And then the advantages that they had might be passed on to their descendants. This is the genesis of evolution. So by, by 1838, he had the theory worked out, but he held off publishing for 20 years. Part of it was he knew what the reaction would be. And in his first book, The Origin of Species, which, which appeared in 1859, he only had a little bit about people. He said, theoretically, this could apply to people too. He didn't want to draw out those conclusions in great depth. It wasn't for another 10 years that he wrote On the Descent of Man, and that began the real monkey business. <laughs> but when he held off on publishing, he also wanted to be able to confirm, to prove what he was going to say because he knew it was a radical step. But in 1858, another person came out with the same theory and wrote him a letter saying, what do you think of this? And he said, uh-oh. In the end, they presented a joint paper, where the theory was it was a joint paper. It turns out that Darwin's child was dying of scarlet fever at the time, so he missed the event. But it was a joint presentation of this discovery, and ultimately his book came out the next year. Now, in that book, The Origin of Species, he summarizes it at the very beginning. As many more individuals of each species are born than can possibly survive, and as consequently there is a frequently recurring struggle for existence, it follows that any being, if it vary however slightly in any manner profitable to itself, under the complex and sometimes varying conditions of life, will have a better chance of surviving and thus be naturally selected. 
From the strong principle of inheritance, any selected variety will tend to propagate its new and modified form. Not selected because they are good, or selected because they are moral, or ethical, or doing God's will. They're selected because they have the survival advantage. Now, what's interesting about the book is that the word evolution does not appear in, on the origin of species. That actual word evolution doesn't appear. Just like the phrase, the wall of separation of church and state, doesn't appear in the Constitution. The concept is embedded there. The interpretation is long been rooted there. The framers of that document articulated that message, but the phrase isn't there. The closest he gets is at the end of the book. There is grandeur in this view of life, Darwin writes, with its several powers, having been originally breathed into a few forms or into one, and that whilst this planet has gone on cycling according to the fixed law of gravity, from so simple a beginning in endless forms, most beautiful and most wonderful have been and are being evolved. That gradually from one ancestor, all this diversity came to be, and how wonderful and beautiful. Now, by the time of Darwin's death in 1882, he had convinced most scientists of the truth of his view of evolution, including as it applied to human beings, even though that was resisted very strongly. The big debate was, of course, could species change from one to the other? This is something that comes up today in creationist discourse. They try to make a distinction between macroevolution and microevolution. Microevolution means that you can have a change within a species. So if there are peppered moths, some that are dark and some that are white, and all of a sudden industry begins spewing soot all over the place, and the white moths are very easy for the birds to find, and the dark moths are very hard for the birds to find, then that population will change its characteristics pretty fast. That they might accept, microevolution. But the concept of a species becoming another species, or a species changing into different species, or evolving in different directions with branches that in the end don't reconnect, that was very controversial. Now, we have to understand if we're talking about Darwin's legacy, it's not only what he did when he was alive, but it's also what was done with his ideas after he died. You know, your legacy is not only what you did, it's what other people do with what you did. So I want to share with you two of the negative legacies of Darwin that we have to understand ways to which his thought was put, and then look at some of the positives. The first, was a field that was called eugenics. Eugenics had its peak in the early 20th century. It had advocates as illustrious as Oliver Wendell Holmes, Supreme Court Justice in this country. The idea for eugenics was, just as with cattle or with dogs, you know, the dachshund did not show up out of nowhere. The, the, the German shepherd did not show up out of nowhere. We bred them, we made them by choosing certain characteristics to pursue. There's a reason why sled dogs like to pull, and greyhounds love to run. We bred them that way. Well, why can't you do the same with people? Why don't you decide what your good, admirable characteristics are and make sure those people get together? And decide which are your negative characteristics that you don't want propagated into the population, and we take care of those as well in a variety of ways. Maybe you don't let them get married. Maybe you prevent them from having children. Maybe by sterilization. Maybe you decide to simply make them leave 
or don't let them in, or get rid of them. You can see from this concept of eugenics, it is an application of survival of the fittest or the idea that populations change over time, that heredity is important in passing on characteristics, that breeding provides value. There is a Yiddish concept related to this. It's called yichas. It's the pedigree. It's the idea that your parents give you status. The parallel to yichas is called nachas, which is the pleasure you get from your children. But um, in this case, they're looking backwards, the pedigree from the parents to the children, and what do we want in a society? Of course, this can lead to terrible things. And you don't need genetics to have an ethnic superiority complex. Again, Jewish history can be a witness to this. If you've heard of the concept of the chosen people, the Japanese believe that Japan is the land of the gods. The Greek word for non-Greek was barbarian. So you don't need genetics to have a sense of superiority, but it can reinforce it to very negative ends. And Darwin himself rejected it. He did consider it. I mean, he talked about the question of, well, should we not support the weak? Should we? Because after all, we are undermining natural selection. You know, I would have been run over by a water buffalo when I was 12 years old and my eyesight went down the tubes. But we invented something to save me. Um, we have immunizations. We have uh, genetic uh, therapies now that enable people to stay alive much longer, even to the point of having their own children, where in past generations they would have either been exposed in Greek practice or they would have simply died. We're changing the rules of the game. Is that good for us? Darwin considered that, and he said, you know what? Our compassion is more important. And if we eliminated sympathy, we wouldn't be human. So we can't do the extremes. But others were not so reticent. And we've also found, of course, that there are positive values to what are thought to be negative traits. For example, in the African-American community, there's a prevalence of a recessive trait for sickle cell anemia. But it turns out that while sickle cell anemia is a tremendously painful condition when it strikes, if you live in a malaria-prone area, it makes you less prone to getting malaria, which is a survival advantage in that context. And so again, genetic diversity is important. Now, the other major negative use of Darwinism, I'm sure you've heard of, is called social Darwinism. The claim that it's a sort of like an argument from results. If we are the people on top, then we must have been the fittest. And society should be organized to facilitate us staying on top and moving forward. Again, it's kind of a eugenic style argument of let's take the best and make them better. It's good for society. Now, this wasn't unique, by the way, even to the white population. Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, who is an intellectual scholar, uh, Harvard degree, um, wanted to promote what he called the talented tenth. It was taking the best and brightest in the African-American community and promoting them to then uplift everybody else. And you can hear a kind of social Darwinist edge to that. Now, the challenge is, is that truly the way society works? Did everybody start at the same plane and then the fittest cream rose to the top? I mean, you occasionally hear people interviewed today and these billionaires need to get media consultants to get them to shut up. <laughs> but they say things like, well, we work harder. Really? 
The person earning millions and hundreds of millions of dollars is working harder than the person in the factory, the person in the mine. The, I mean, those people are not working harder. I'm sorry. Now, whether or not they're entitled to their money or what percentage of their money after taxation, that's a whole other discussion. But the claim that we have this because we're entitled to it because of who we are or because, again, it has that social Darwinist edge to it, it's not necessarily a result of Darwinism. But we have to understand that the negative legacy is also part of Darwin's legacy. In fact, many creationists will draw on the history of eugenics and the history of social Darwinism to try and discredit the whole theory of evolution. Saying, look what this does. The, the line historically was, if you tell people they're animals, they'll act like it. Well, we understand that the positive legacy of Darwin, for us at least, outweighs the negative. Once in the 1930s, and then ultimately in the 1950s when they discovered the structure of DNA, we were able to combine the theory of evolution with natural selection and the science of genetics and understanding how genes worked. Now we had the mechanism that expressed natural selection. We, see, we didn't know why it was that my daughter looks half like my wife and half like me. Anytime you go to parents visiting the college, it's very obvious. I'm always mystified that no one figured out genetics before. When you see, oh, this is my friend I've known for a year, and now I see both of his parents, and I can see, you know, it's what uh, Conan O'Brien used to do on late night television called If They Made It, where he sort of cut out features of these celebrities and slap them together in a face. Well, sometimes that happens. But the point is that genetics was why natural selection worked, how it worked. It was the mechanism to pass on those traits, to mix them up, and to create new ones. Evolution has become an elegant and alternative explanation for why things are and how they are. Richard Dawkins has said that before evolution, you couldn't really have a meaningful approach to life without a God. But now with evolution, you don't need a God to have a deep, thorough understanding of how and why the world is what it is. A second legacy of Darwin is he proves the value of diversity and flexibility. New circumstances demand new survival strategies. The more variety you have, the more likely the species will survive and thrive. You see, it's a model for our contemporary culture, for society. It's a model for Jewish life. Think about the problems of an isolated population without genetic diversity. And then look at the prevalence of these Ashkenazi-linked genetic diseases. It's because we married people from the same town, who married people from the same town, who married people from the same town. We need to deepen the gene pool. It's good for the Jews. A third legacy is that true is more important than I need it to be true. We have to have the courage to face uncomfortable conclusions that may change or even challenge our assumptions of what we know to be true. Because after all, what we want to be true is not always what is true. The evolutionary biologist Stephen Jay Gould, near the end of his life, wrote a lot about the conflict between science and religion. He said it'd be no problem if religion stuck to its department and science stuck to its department. The old line for this was, science tells you how the heavens go, not how to go to heaven. Gould's point was, science just explains the world. It describes what is. It does not tell you what ought to be, what it all means. That's philosophy, that's religion, that's 
exploration. But the point is, you need to start with what is true. What is. And what we want to be true may not be what is true. And finally, the legacy of evolution is the power of human knowledge to see more than we can see alone. I could never have discovered this theory. Darwin himself alone never discovered genetics to make the theory work. Or the structure of the DNA, which Rosalind Franklin and Francis uh, Crick and Watson discovered. All of it came together. It was the collective of human knowledge that made sense. The images we have of the Milky Way, when we're an isolated dot in this huge universe. Understanding the world before it was as it is now. Picturing our own distant ancestors looking far different than we did. Maybe there's an upright stance. Maybe there's an opposable thumb. Maybe there's a chipped ax. Maybe it's just an enlarged brain that we have in common. They found just recently, I heard on the news on the way here, footprints in England that were 800,000 years old. They were eroded, over the, the sand over them was eroded away, they appeared, they took molds and x-rays and 3D video and everything, and the sand came again and wiped them away. But it's our technology that will preserve that memory, and it's the connection with our ancestor that lets us know that when we see that footprint, it's us. The architecture in this room is evocative of that quest. I read a piece by the architect who designed it. If you go to the website of the North Shore Unitarian Church, they have a link to the architect's site that has in-process pictures, but also the description of why they did it the way they did. There were two inspirations for this. One was the Orion Nebula. And so the stars shine down as if from the sky, and the unlit stained glass is evocative of the explosion of color from that, uh, that nebula. But the other imagery that he presented is evoked by the rock. It's the cave paintings at Lascaux. Those images from 20,000, 30,000, 50,000 years ago that our ancestors painted to evoke their lives, to say, I was here. And my favorite painting in those caves, as I've said before, is not a bull and not a bison and not a hunter. It's a hand. When they put their hand on the wall and said, I am here. That's what we do. As human beings, we learn from each other and we grow. Isaac Newton, when he was inducted into the pantheon of English scientists, said, if I see so far, it is only because I have stood on the shoulders of giants. And so too with Charles Darwin. This podcast was recorded and produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke, and thank you for listening.